This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. Before we get to today's program, just a quick reminder that O'Reilly has a fabulous lineup of conferences this summer and fall. There's something for everyone. At the Strata Conference, I'm hosting a new program called the Strata Business Summit. This is a series of talks that focus on the value of data to the modern business with real concrete advice for executives and managers who need to stay on top of recent changes and best practice thinking in the field of big data. Visit StratAConf for more information on the O'Reilly Strata Conference. The Strata Business Summit is happening in London in May and in New York in September. And as I mentioned, I'm hosting it myself. It's a terrific program and great for anyone who is concerned about maximizing the value of data for any business. My guest today on the BOTS podcast is independent bot enthusiast and all-around social media observer, Chris Messina. Chris, great to have you on. Thanks for having me now. So uh, Chris and I were both at Facebook's F8 conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in April. Uh, this is Facebook's annual developer conference. Mark Zuckerberg comes, uh, Regina Dugan comes, all of these people uh, who, who are kind of leading Facebook's initiatives come and they present what Facebook is up to. And it was a pretty spectacular outpouring of efforts and uh, has offered us a good way to sort of reflect on what Facebook has become over the last, uh, I guess it would be 13 or so years and the role that it plays in our lives and what it means for people who are developing applications on services like Facebook Messenger and uh, some of the new kinds of uh, Facebook application platforms that were announced at F8. So this isn't an F8 rundown, but it's a good time to think about what Facebook is. So Chris, what, what did you walk out of F8 thinking about? It's so funny. I mean, I won't say Skynet, but uh, there is this, you know, I think you make a very interesting point. Uh, and, and I also think that we are, we are coming to both uh, a specific inflection point for Facebook, but also for the overall ecosystem of, uh, I think, technology developers. Um, and I think this is most, if, if I took something away that sort of stuck in my mind as being like, wait, what? Like, what just happened? There were, you know, some very high level forward looking statements for a developer conference that I haven't really seen done before. You know, usually a developer conference is kind of like, and today we're launching this API and, you know, we have this new platform and, you know, put your data here and do this analytics on this thing or whatever, or learn how to, you know, game our system and, you know, make more money off of SEO or, you know, feed optimization, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was Zuckerberg kind of coming out as the kind of techno statesman uh, that he's sort of turning into mm -hmm. and saying, look at the world and look at how broken it is and look at how humanity is really struggling to kind of unify itself. And to come together. And don't we as technologists sort of building the platforms that could connect people have an obligation or an opportunity to build products that, um, that do that, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that, that, that stuck to me, I, I think there's two parts of it. One was this sort of statement where he said, in the future, people are going to be doing less manual labor. I'm sort of uh, ad-libbing a little bit. Um, and more creative production, more mm -hmm. cultural works. Mm -hmm. They're essentially going to become, you know, artists uh, in a way. Um, and so that was that was interesting. I mean, it sort of gets into the universal basic income, you know, conversation or whatever without specifically saying that. And he's saying this, of course, to a developer audience uh, where I don't imagine that there was a whole lot of artists in that crowd. Right. So I was sort of wondering who that was actually targeted to and what that means. And then I think the other piece that sort of also struck me as being somewhat odd was that, you know, he's like, let's unify the world and bring everyone together. And the way that we're going to do that is with, you know, messenger day frames and filters. And I'm like, wait, wait. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so you're going to crowdsource your Snapchat competitor and that's how we're going to bring the world together. Right, right. Uh, this stuff does not quite add up to yeah. me. There's an element of Silicon Valley sort of self-parody in anything that's like, you know, <laughs> we're going to make the world a better place with reasonably priced payment processing on mobile devices. Um, and, and it, yeah, it, it, it had, there was this, there was this very plaintive appeal for unity, for uh, all of mankind to find its fundamental, uh, you know, binding characteristics and, and celebrate them. And uh, the way that we're going to do this, the way that we're going to, you know, um, unify all of humanity and, and find peace is augmented reality, having a little avatar yes. who sits in a room with other people. I, 
exactly. Uh, and and I think that it's important, of course, to sort of set you know the 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 high watermark, if you will. You know, we're going to go to the moon and we're going to end up with dip and dots kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. Like, like that's fine. Um, but when it comes down to it, uh, I just I really struggle to see how we're really going to get there unless you know the 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 F eight developer sort of experience is more inclusive and uh-huh. finds a way of speaking to a broader audience. Right now, it is true that. If you think about Oculus and you think about some of the augmented reality stuff, that is going to require a different skill set, a different group of people to come together. And at the VR conference that Facebook held, I think last fall, mm-hmm. maybe more of the folks who produce that kind of content were, were there at that conference. Mm-hmm. But so you really, I mean, to your point, what is Facebook and what is, I guess, the Facebook developer ecosystem look like as it grows up? You have this group of people who are very focused on content distribution through the Facebook newsfeed. Like mm-hmm. that is still the dominant way that a lot of people use Facebook, even as messaging eclipses you know, the conventional approach to, to social networking. Um, and so they're there to understand, like, what are the changes to the algorithm and how do I get my content to pop and how do I charge more for right. my clients to get better distribution um, on the platform? And then there's this issue where Facebook has to turn itself into the next generation of social experiences. And those experiences are going to be much more media savvy or, or centric, rather, much more uh, richer, much more ubiquitous, much more CPU intensive. Um you know, and it's it's funny uh, because you're still kind of wondering, like, it, you know, is Facebook like a hardware company sort mm-hmm. of in the Oculus realm? Are they a software and platforms company? You know, they don't have a lot of the same infrastructure plays that like Google and Amazon have, but they have the graph. You know, they right. still have the graph and they're still the primary way. And I think, you know, they did a couple of things that were interesting with regards to user identity, mm-hmm. um, where you can actually now, now like the Facebook identity is so central to logging into third party accounts that you can actually do account recovery through Facebook. Right, so you don't right. even need to fall back to email because who uses email anymore? Instead, you can simply uh, sort of outsource that process to the Facebook user's account. And so um, if for whatever reason they've forgotten something or, or how to get access, um, Facebook now takes care of that. Right. So again, you know, what is it? Is it hardware? Is it software? Is it none of those things? Are these just sort of artificial or dated ways of thinking about technology? And in mm-hmm. fact, really... What Facebook is all about is about social experiences and technologies that drive from that. You know, right. so whether it is the brain writing stuff or whether it's the listening by or or hearing by, you know, pushing pressure on your on your skin or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are these ways of increasing and scaling the Facebook platform to every human on the planet, regardless of whether they can speak, whether they can see, whether they can hear, you know, regardless of like whatever cognitive services they lack, you mm-hmm. can make up for it with uh, additional technology. Right, right. As you point out, the typical attendee of a conference like this is looking for something much more concrete than what's getting shown in the keynotes. And I really wonder how many people who are, say, you know, running a small social media optimization consultancy and like building Facebook pages for clients are going to start to use and appreciate Facebook's state-of-the-art simultaneous location and and mapping technology uh, that powers their, you know, insane augmented reality. Some of those technologies have been around for a long time. Obviously, there's a lot of room to create APIs that simplify tools like that. But uh, for the most part, technology along those lines, that AI stuff is is very complex, takes a lot of effort to use it effectively. Maybe Facebook's going to knock it out of the park and create, you know, tools that make it easy to use effectively. But, um, you know, a reason that we don't all have uh, virtual reality headsets on right now is that it's turned out to be very expensive and not just expensive, but like tricky to create good content for them. It's very easy to make your audience nauseous. Uh, It's very easy to, you know, underestimate the amount of computing that needs to go into generating the stuff. You could easily see something happening with the augmented reality. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing that I would add to that, though, is that... um... And this, this sort of dovetails with, I think, Zuckerberg's point in the opening is that the, the, the skill set and the capabilities of people to produce this kind of content, you know, writ large is lacking, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you're sort of, uh, I think, suggesting the level of sophistication that's required to contribute to this new, you know, world web mm-hmm. effectively uh, is an order of magnitude more complex than the previous generation. And while there are things, you know, there's this React VR thing that came out of it that might make it somewhat more accessible and easier to use. Um, you know, th- there was an interesting, I heard this on a podcast the other day, 
oh, they were talking about IQ mm-hmm. um, and about what it measures and how there's this, I think it's called the Flynn effect, where over years, the IQ sort of average goes up. Hmm. And the reason is because as media becomes more sophisticated and you require to sort of you know, know more about the world, the things that you actually know sort of as common sense also increases. Hmm. So for example, um, let's say in the 40s, uh, people's geometric uh, like ability to, 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 to imagine geometric concepts was relatively low. Right. Uh-huh. So if I show you, you know, a triangle and I'm like, what's on the other side of this triangle um, and it's a three dimensional object, you have to imagine that in your mind and be able to turn that object around in your head. Mm-hmm. Now, if you live in a world where everything is 2D and flat and you get most of your news, let's say through the newspaper, you actually have a huge disadvantage relative to people who are watching advertisements in today's world in 2017 where you know you're constantly seeing 3D objects flying through space moving around you're playing video games like you are constantly actually imagining objects in 3D mm-hmm. space so your IQ of course increases over time and anyways i guess like what i'm what i'm sort of wondering about is the leap that it takes to create content if you grew up on the document centric web right. where you could literally view source and sort of you know see the h1 tag and be like okay there's a title versus you know the AR or the VR experience where you see an object in space and you know, I haven't done enough of it yet to know if you can like sort of right click click on it, you know, or uh-huh, whatever you do uh-huh. on that thing, blink at it, and sort of like view the source and be like, oh, I'm going to tweak these two variables, and suddenly it sort of grows or adapts in this other way, right? It's a right, whole right. different sort of ball game. And I guess my question is, what is being done to produce that next level um, or that next generation of creator that mm-hmm. understands this stuff intuitively, and you know, will will build and share? the content um, you know, and stuff with, with the world. And if those people already exist, amazing, that's great. Were they at F8? And if they weren't, why? And what does that say about us as an industry to do a better job of actually incorporating those different perspectives and viewpoints? Right, right. You can talk with people who create uh, you know, VR and AR content, and they've figured out some of these best practices for creating compelling content, but they aren't kind of widely known and understood in the way that like, you know, iMovie will basically like automatically apply a lot of best practices related to movie making to your thing. There are overlays that show you rules of thirds and help you like compose your shots. And, um, you know, all of the automated kinds of transitions and stuff are kind of set by people at Apple who know what they're doing from years and years in the movie experience. The uh, conventions of, of VR and AR altogether are yet to be invented. I think there's this idea that VR and AR are just going to be so realistic you forget that you're in them. But in reality, we'll have to have conventions for kind of creating this content in the way that if you if you showed a person in uh, 1895 of a modern film where two people are talking and the camera is cutting back and forth between them, they probably have no idea what's going on. It looks like two separate films that have been spliced together. But we, through our experience watching movies, know that this is how you show that a conversation is happening. So um, we'll see some of the same uh, conventions get invented in, uh, you know, in, in VR and AR. There are a lot of funny, like, technical challenges that have yet to be worked out. Facebook was showing a lot of uh, kind of 360 cameras that, that can be used to create, you know, immersive uh, video experiences if you're wearing an Oculus headset. And this will require a complete reinvention of the movie production process, where right now you have, like, a backstage and a, and a stage idea and and you can have the crew backstage or whatever but now everyone's going to have to like hide down the block or like under a tarp or something <laughs> something like that it's going to be totally. you know uh, the whole process of shooting this stuff is going to is going to totally change well it's funny you know i just actually had i, I mean i have no idea how much you know uh, our listeners have a sense for you know 3D VR how much they're using this stuff i had my first um experience with the Cirque du Soleil um is it an app? I don't know. That sort of lives in the Oculus land. Um, I've got a Gear VR from last F8, and I finally like had this experience. And to your point, right? These are live actors, basically performing mm-hmm. to a 360 camera, and you're in the middle of this performance, and you can look around, and there's all these things happening in every rich, every which way, every direction. And um, this is not like 3D. This is not, um, you know, sort of a, a fake environment. This is like happening uh, right. that happened at some point in reality. Um, and so designing for that kind of completely immersive environment and space is very, very different than, again, the skill set that we've had before. So there is this question of how or do we convert uh, people with existing skills who know how to publish for the web to this new, more immersive environment? And does that even make sense? You know, right. It's not the case, and we've seen this over and over again, that 
a new medium replaces the previous medium. Oftentimes, mediums become more expressive, they become, become additive. You know, newspapers are still around, books are still around, even as we have alternative ways of actually exploring and experiencing that content. So um, I guess I, I, haven't, I haven't actually explored this myself yet, but there's a CNN um, VR channel with hmm. an Oculus, and you can experience the news in an entirely different way that uh, drives a whole lot more empathy and sort of understanding of the situation relative to seeing, you know, 2D static photos mm -hmm. that you typically consume, you know, the news with. And so you start to wonder, like, how does um, the skew increase over time between people who live in that VR space mm. and have, let's say, a much more visceral sense for those types of experiences relative to people who are reading the news and seeing static photos versus maybe people who are watching it on TV, you know? Yeah. So the generational shift between each one of these, I guess, media defined, I don't know, they're not really, it's not age-based. I think it's experience-based. Mm -hmm. um, how will that shape up and what opportunities exist for people to build for each of those different sort of modalities? Yeah. You know, we talk about these days, uh, the, the social problem that arises when people don't have access to a computer. We see this as, as a massive kind of social and economic handicap if you don't have the internet available in your home or increasingly just, you know, on your phone. You could imagine that a similar gap might arise if, you know, not just in terms of all the people with economic power want to meet on a VR headset and you don't have one so you can't meet with them, but also the kind of empathy that you're talking about if, if the, our experiences become divergent. Oh my God. I mean, what a crazy thought, right? That we're sort of at the point in human history where, you know, having access to the internet is sort of the, the equivalent of having access to roads. Right. And right. yet, you know, we're not talking about roads anymore, really. What we're talking about are types of vehicles of experience and expression that have, you know, 100x increased in their complexity and their sophistication in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that it's going to be very, very interesting to see, you know, it's funny, you know, here I live in, in downtown San Francisco and um, of course we have a social network for the building that I live in <laughs> and people are still posting um, you know, their want ads to like Craigslist, right, you know, which right. is the most newspaper of newspaper digital services that you can get. Right. And meanwhile, right. of course, you and I are having this conversation about, you know, augmented and virtual reality and sort of this, this, I don't even know, just alternative universe of things. So that gulf is present with us now. Right. It's not like going from like, you know, newspaper to like television over 30 or 40 years. It's like inventing newspapers and then like two weeks later, like having television and having those things simultaneously existing. And the people who are, you know, watching TV are getting so much more of a, of a, bombardment of information relative to the newspaper that you're like, oh my God, what is going on? How right, do we keep right. up with this? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just like, they're, you know, on top of all sorts of kind of viral sensational things that they talk about on TV that they don't talk about in the New York times. And it strikes me whenever right. I talk with someone who watches a lot of cable news. So it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's telling that we've spent the first 15 minutes of this conversation talking about, uh, the VR and AR, uh, announcements at F8. And I think that that says something about what's happened to the rest of Facebook. And I yes. have I have kind of a provocative theory, which is that no one really has an opinion anymore about core Facebook. It just is. It's like a yes. utility, um, and and everyone is on it. You know, so Facebook became available when I was a uh, sophomore in college, and um, uh, there was a while when it was very cool, and everyone wanted to get on it, and then they opened it up and people's parents got on and, and all the young people got off and there was a lot of hand-wringing. Will Facebook survive? Young people don't want to be on it. And then it came back and young people turned out to be on it. And then Snapchat came along and there was a lot of like, ah, oh, the young people now are now on Snapchat. They're not on Facebook. Facebook is doomed. Turned out Facebook survived. And so, so Facebook is no longer going through these kind of oscillations related to the changing tastes of the youth. It's just become something that everyone is on. And uh, you don't really hear people saying like, oh, I, I hate Facebook. It's annoying. Why do people make me be on it the way that you did a few years ago? Certainly some people do, but it's, it, it's taken on a different characteristic. It, it feels like it's just a reality of digital existence. I mean, there's certainly an assumption I think that you can make, which is a real, like, relatively good one that more people will be on Facebook than alternative platforms. Yeah. And you certainly can't make the same assumption about Twitter unless you're in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's still plenty of people who um, 
uh, on the one hand would sort of scoff and take offense to your your position that everyone <laughs> has to be on it all the time. But I think the point stands that we do kind of take for granted that you, you know if you are on the internet, you probably have a Facebook account, even if you don't use it. You probably use it to sign into different things because who wants to manage passwords? You know, right. as, as Steve Jobs once said, "Yuck, who wants that?" <laughs> uh, you know, so like uh, Facebook has really won when it comes to identity and access. Right. And I think you're right that we're no longer like you know wringing our fists uh, or hands about you know, well, should I use it? Should I not use it? Now it is part of the sort of like the landscape, uh, just as people used to, well, and they still do use browsers, of course, to access websites. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Facebook obviously is 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 incredibly um, necessary for people to keep up with their friends, um, much more so than I think email and other places like that. Um, and, and you see this obviously with all the angst around fake news, which was something that was brought up at F8 and they did talk about a little bit. And it's it's so I find I find this um, I mean to pivot a little bit to maybe a darker subject mm -hmm. uh, like the whole conversation around Facebook's responsibility for the things that get published on Facebook is a very very difficult one uh, to encounter yeah because if you sh you know just simply imagine the enormous amount of content and it, and it's 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 one of those you know like numbers that humans can't actually fathom or have any relationship to whatsoever but if you see that one you know murder or yeah. whatever. Um, you know, or you heard about it, then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, we got to like stop all the bad stuff on Facebook. And you're like, oh my God, do you realize what you're actually asking for? Do you right, realize what right. it would take to get right. there? Right. Or, or people say things like, uh, how could Facebook let him put this on Facebook? And yes. it's like, well, it's, it's not that someone at Facebook saw it and let it happen. It just, you know, it's, it's like, how, how could you let this aircraft carrier bump into a whale? Uh, you know, in the middle of in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it's, it, it's not it's not that someone was like, you know, oh, there's a whale, let's hit it. It just it's like a reality of these massive uh, institutions and well, the stuff I mean, that flows your, through them. Your point, though, like, I mean, it's kind of like if if there is a channel that allows people to express and share their life experience, it turns out that not everyone's life is great. Yeah, and that there are moments where people have you know, challenging problems. There might be also compounding uh, factors around mental health and things like that. And that's a whole different, you know, area that we're mm -hmm. not really doing a great job with. But um, it, to imagine that Facebook is only the bright lit, you know, sort of aisles in Walmart that are safe to sort of like walk around in, I think mm -hmm. is sort of missing the point. Mm -hmm. And the fact that a lot more of this stuff actually is kind of available on the dark web where there are less you know, filters and less AI that's kind of working to um, reduce harm. And, you know, Facebook is doing work on this stuff. I mean, oh, the yeah. fact that, you know, think about it from this perspective, like, yes, uh, I, I believe um, with the Cleveland murder, uh, I think the video was taken down in maybe two to three hours, mm -hmm. whereas the one in Thailand maybe was 24 hours. But the very fact that, you know, there's a way of reporting this stuff now yeah. um, that Facebook occupies in some ways this this gover government, you know, style, um, you know, position in our lives where there's an assumption that you should be able to dial 911, so to speak, um, to get assistance for something that you see that isn't right. Mm -hmm. And that Facebook has to understand the local laws and the local context and whether or not they should take something down fits into this whole question of what this media environment means to us and to our consciousness. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine what those conversations are like inside. Right. right, because the moment that Facebook says that it's a publisher, it does take responsibility for everything that's put on it, and then you do get into the position of actually having to to require permission to publish things. Right, in right. which case, who gets permission to publish, and how do they go about you know getting that permission and going through that process? And now there they become a gatekeeper like we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's that's a very scary aspect of this conversation that I think is very hard to have. Um, because people see the bad things, they want them to go away without understanding the full extent of the ramifications that that, that type of approach could actually have. Right, right. For the listeners, this is a really important point uh, that Chris is making uh, related to the, the kind of safe harbor protections that are given to um, platforms. If you're just a platform and you're letting people publish whatever they want and you have no mechanism for kind of reviewing things and applying editorial judgment, then you're not liable for the stuff that people post on the platform, as long as you act reasonably fast uh, to respond to complaints. But if you uh, do exercise kind of editorial judgment in a general or, or widespread way, then you become liable for everything on the site. So your point here uh, that you're making, Chris, is really important, and I haven't heard it stated quite this way 
elsewhere. So what you're saying is that if this outrage about stuff that occasionally appears on Facebook causes Facebook to act more forcefully and more preemptively in taking down objectionable content, then Facebook might be understood to be an editor and have kind of an edited, curated platform, in which case it's now liable for everything that everyone puts on Facebook. And there's no way that Facebook is going to be as permissive as it is now in allowing people to post, say, creative stuff or dissenting stuff. You could imagine that, uh, you know, Turkey, for instance, would begin to to insist that Facebook take down politically objectionable stuff in a case like this. Everyone would just have more leverage to insist this is, that this, it is, this, this is happening to some degree, right? I mean, in, in France, for example, you have to censor uh, Nazi propaganda. You know, Google does this, uh, Facebook does it, mm -hmm. but they do it in a geofenced way. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. other words, that respects the local laws. And I think this is where it gets very tricky, right? Here you have this, you know, terrible, um, you know, I won't, I won't even describe it, but like a uh, situation in Thailand and, you know, do the laws of the United States apply? Do the laws of Thailand apply? Mm -hmm. Do some other, you know, laws of the internet, which of course don't exist, apply? How do you deal with that? And do you make, and, and I think the companies do to some extent, make exceptions on these local levels, but do we want a more free and open Facebook to some degree? Obviously, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's I mean, to, to draw an analogy, right? Like I can make a phone call to someone else and say anything that I want to. Right. And the phone company, company is not liable for the fact that I said those things. Right. It's a and common carrier. It's a common carrier. And in, in, in some ways, I mean, Facebook has become that, uh, especially in the messenger context. We use it to send messages back and forth. And mm -hmm. we kind of granted it's still private and it's still controlled by Facebook um, and it doesn't interoperate with other platforms. It's still, as you said, incredibly useful and incredibly central to so many people's lives and how they stay connected to their community. And in fact, you know, if you removed um, access to Facebook, but not access to the Internet, in some communities, I think actually losing access to Facebook would be more detrimental mm -hmm. than losing access to the internet because yeah. so much activity and so much social cohesion actually takes place on the platform. Anyways, so it's it's a, it's an incredibly interesting and very, especially in this political climate, um, challenging topic to address. Um, and it does, I think, point us in the direction of kind of asking, you know, what role does Facebook have? What type of governance um, and accountability should a company like Facebook have? Um, especially because it's so close to people. Like this is mm -hmm. one of the big differences that I think separates Google from Facebook and even Amazon. You know, is that you're talking about user-generated content, which of course is an old idea, mm -hmm. but as an expression of a person and a, and a person's ex experience. And to what degree do you censor or prevent people from sharing that stuff mm -hmm. in order to keep the community relatively safe? You know, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. what type of policing needs to happen, and who is responsible for that policing? Yeah, I, I had a, a really surprising kind of interaction with Facebook uh, this past weekend. I was with some friends in South Dakota, and we went to a really small town, population 94. And we wow. went into a bar uh, late on Saturday night. There was a kind of a scary cowboy bar. And uh, <laughs> it was great. I mean, we were, we were seeking out this kind of experience as a way to understand uh, you know, the red states and- Ethnography, um, sure. And, and uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, so, so glibly characterize a bar by the kind of people in it, except that like four people actually were wearing cowboy hats, honest to God, cowboy hats. So, sure. you know, we, we walk in and, and uh, we were clearly out of towners and the, uh, the bartender kind of was this uh, older guy, big, big, you know, gray beard and uh, made fun of us for being from the coasts and uh, was, was pretty... Elites. Right. Pretty direct, you know. I think the second or third thing he said was, uh, "This is Trump country, and uh, Clinton supporters get their asses kicked around here." <laughs> and uh, but we we decided to stay. And and the 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 first thing uh, one of us asked was uh, the, of the bartender was sort of, you know, so what's going on around here? What's uh, what are people up to? And he answered by pulling out his Android phone, unlocking it, opening Facebook and scrolling through his Facebook feed and pointing out people who were in the bar and what they had, you know, recently put on wow. Facebook as a way of showing what they're up to. And this was oh a God. this was a profound moment for me because as a way to reflect on Facebook's universality and to think about um, the role that it played in the election cuz a lot yes. of us uh, on the coasts were frustrated that Facebook didn't do more to uh, intercede in the spread of certain kinds of viral news. 
And this, this really gives you a sense of how important Facebook is all over the country and, and throughout the world without respect to, to political leanings. It shows you why Mark Zuckerberg would be really reluctant to take any kind of political position. And this goes back to my earlier feeling that like Facebook has managed to grow into adulthood and into just uh, blankness. I mean, it's like it's 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 a it's a neutral. It's just a neutral thing. Like you don't have an opinion about it. It just, it just kind of like exists. It's not provocative in itself. And this is how it's made itself palatable to the widest possible audience. A lot of people in California, in the Bay Area, you know, young sort of uh, tech hustlers on founding a social network would be inclined to found a social network that appeals to people like them. That's a place where they and their friends would hang out. That's kind of full of cool people in some sense. And I think one of one of uh, the remarkable things about the product that Mark Zuckerberg has built is that at some point he decided to make it universal and to put down this notion of like coolness or really even the platform representing anything more than just universal place for meeting anyone you want to. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I like I, I, I roughly agree with what you're saying, um, but there's also this imperative and I'm not sure, you know, whether it's the Silicon Valley dream or what, but obviously it feels like a lot of these things end up starting out kind of elite and exclusive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part of that exclusivity is what drives the interest and desire of other people to actually join and, and participate. Um, there's sort of a sense that, oh, well, if that's, you know, where the cool people are going, then I want to be in it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in contrast, like MySpace obviously did not weather that. Um, right. They sort of became so open, uh, you know, and they also like had a number of missteps and engineering issues and, you know, whatever. But Facebook, of course, did start out ex- like extremely exclusive. Right. You know, part of the 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 sort of coastal elites, you know, mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. Harvard and so forth um, and out of academia and sort of grew up with people, but increasingly became more and more populist. Right. And I mean, to draw sort of like a contemporary uh, analogy, I think Uber actually followed a very similar path where it started out with, you know, basically serving the black car audience, mm-hmm. where there are folks who are willing to spend a good amount of money to have that kind of experience. And then over time, went down market to offer UberX and then UberPool. Mm-hmm. And each of these things is sort of making that um, product concept more and more in line with a broader constituency. I think mean, mm-hmm. Facebook has done very much the same thing now to the point where, to your point, it's kind of ingrained in those communities. And in some ways, it's probably very new because the level of access that people have about each other mm-hmm. now is so much greater than it was before. And for some of us, probably on the on the coast, like it's somewhat passe. It's right. like, oh yeah, you know, we've been using Facebook for like, you know, 13 years or right, right, know, right. whatever it is. It's like, of course, <laughs> like, you know, I I I barely post updates anymore. Like, right, you know, like right, sometimes right. Sometimes I get some birthday wishes or whatever. <laughs> oh, but, oh, my photos you know. on Facebook, they're all just things that other people put up of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, now I'm on Instagram or now, right, you know, whatever right. it is, there is this migration. And yet, you know, Facebook obviously has also done a very, done a very good job of buying a lot of the sort of coolness um, that's spun up around it, you know, especially in the case of Instagram, um, in WhatsApp. And they tried to acquire Snapchat. And of course, mm-hmm. when Snapchat said no, and this, I mean, it's so funny when this pattern repeats, right? It's like some big company comes along and says, well, I want to buy you. Mm-hmm. And then the company's like, mm, no, thanks. And then, of course, it's like game on. Like, all right, right. well, if you're not going to sell to us, then we're going to you know, come destroy you. Right. And I think in this case, we're still in the midst of this battle for the future between Facebook and Snapchat. And Snapchat does have a different perspective. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they're very much more media centric. They're more LA focused. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious to see if Evan Spiegel is able to ride human behavior as well as Zuckerberg seems to have been able to. Like Zuckerberg almost doesn't care. He almost has this like strange intelligence. And I've noticed this in, yeah. in Silicon Valley um, success stories. You know, there's almost like this it's not ambivalence for like, you know, humans, but there's kind mm-hmm. of like this awareness that humans, you know, feel <laughs> and emote and stuff. But right. then also there's millions and millions of them. And so their numbers and those numbers need to keep going up. And so therefore just look at what they do and just build for whatever it is that they do and don't have an opinion about your, you know, special, you know, preferred way that people would behave. Right. Just follow the behavior. Just look right? at the A-B testing. Yeah. 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 I mean, literally, right. And so you sort of take this analytical approach to surfing behavior and then suddenly this thing is everywhere. So to your point, Facebook actually, and I think this is also important and something that we have a hard time relating to, 
the experience of Facebook in different places is actually quite different. Mm. Uh, just like the experience of Google is different in different places. Mm -hmm. uh, these platforms are so customized to the locales in which they function and operate. But of course, we don't know that because right. our whole world experience is whatever it is. Right. And so when it comes to fake news, let's say spreading in, um, you know, let's say a context like you are in, the evaluation of that content as fake may not actually be the way that they encounter that information, right? right whether it's right. entertainment or whether it's information that reaffirms what they already thought. It's and, and I mean, we do this to ourselves. Like, you know, I read tech meme every day and I'm reading about the valuation of this company or that company. And I think that stuff's important. But of course, a lot of other people are like, who cares? Right. Like, what's the right. deal? Yeah. You know? And it's uh, yeah, it, 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 it is its own context. And you look at how quickly Facebook reacted to to accusations last year, uh, back during the election from I think it was Breitbart sort of complained that right wing right. news was getting edited out of the news feed more than left wing news, which Facebook later, I think, kind of said is true because right wing news is more likely to be fake news than left wing. news. Right. But uh, man, Facebook got on that immediately. Yes. They had a junket, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg got out and shook everyone's hands and smiled and gave them a tour. <laughs> and it was just like, they put it to rest. So you could tell from how they acted in that context, how sensitive they are to the thought that um, these people in South Dakota, who are every bit as much Facebook customers as you and I are, perceive the platform and any sense of, of non-neutrality to it. A big part of this is around where Facebook makes its money. And of course, alienating any one you know demographic sector actually will hurt its business. Right. So it needs to be very flexible, and it needs to have credibility, and it needs to show that in these cases where you know right wing you know content is being censored, Facebook can be like, no, 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 we are a platform, right? A platform for all sorts of content, and you know we will you know provide a little more user education to say that this thing is in question, mm -hmm. but we are not going to question you, the person who may have shared this. Because you may very well believe it's true. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that is not scientifically founded. Right. And if Facebook went through a process of saying, well, everything that's posted from now on needs to go through the scientific method and needs to be like, you know, sort of, you know, blind verified by three different parties and you need to have like an academic paper that supports it. Right, right. Obviously, sharing would go down precipitously. The amount of truth on Facebook might go up, but the amount of entertainment, enjoyment, and satisfaction that people get out of it would plummet. Right. And instantly Snapchat would win. So this delicate balance, I mean, Facebook as a political context is, I think, incredibly interesting to think about and to also think about perhaps the way in which this is the first in, in some ways. I mean, I think Google might have been the first, but Facebook is much more in people's real lives. And I think Uber is the you know second coming of this, a political organization mm -hmm. that lives in people's lives in a way that a lot of tech companies never aspire to. Or if yeah. they do, they aspire to be that in order to sell you things mm -hmm. as opposed to live with you or to change your life and to integrate with your life and to change literally your consciousness and the way that you see the world and encounter the world. And so that is, at least in my sense, I mean, besides television before, one of the most interesting kind of shifts, you know, when you ask, what is Facebook? Like Facebook is a state of mind. Yeah. Facebook yeah. is a belief system. It is a way of participating in the common discourse that reinforces your own perspectives and gives you, you know, sort of a constant feed of dopamine through likes and new friend requests and messages, and it keeps you in that space. Mm -hmm. And I think one of these really interesting questions that, I mean, the the, the far-ranging conversations that were started at F8, I think, allude to, but didn't really get into is now what do we do with this? Now that we have this new universal consciousness, what the hell does that mean? And is that good for us or is it awful? Right. And I have no idea. I mean, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's. It's always hard to tell. You know, at at developer conferences, companies always show off their cool, shiny stuff. But underneath that, it really is a an event for people who are building social media strategies for you know advertising agencies. And yep. I, I think one of the things that struck me was that uh, Facebook displayed a kind of maturity in addressing that group of essential constituents that makes me think it's uh, here to stay, that Facebook is here to stay. So Facebook, having been imperiled at several steps along its development by the thought that it might lose its coolness and get replaced by, you know, something else that the kids like better, has, has turned itself into a utility. And now it looks much more like Snapchat, which has come up a few times in this discussion. Snapchat strikes me as being much more vulnerable to 
kind of a shift in tastes among like 13 to 18 year olds than Facebook. They have, they've, I understand that there are backend kind of platform tools for Snapchat. They are not evident uh, if you're an ordinary kind of like small business person or individual developer in the same way. Facebook opens itself up and says, build your next great thing on top of us. Snapchat says, well, I guess if you are a big enough news publisher or advertiser, we'll like unlock this secret back panel for you and you can check it out. Yes. And I mean, I think that speaks to my question as to whether or not Snapchat turns itself into a platform, mm -hmm. opens up its API, allows for people to explore, experiment, try things out, and really find a new type of success, or whether Snapchat you know, wants to be and stay the gatekeeper to everything. You know, it was mm -hmm. 10 years ago this week that um, Facebook first opened up its, its newsfeed, basically, mm -hmm. for third mm -hmm. parties. And that was obviously a very big moment. It happened to coincide with um, the launch of the iPhone in the same year, as well as the creation of the hashtag. Mm -hmm. um, it was a big year. <laughs> Ladies uh, and gentlemen, Chris created the hashtag. You, you can read about <laughs> that on the internet. Uh, and so you have to sort of wonder uh, whether or not Snapchat is, I mean, in some ways a one-hit wonder, and if they can mm -hmm. actually turn themselves into a camera company, because that was a big piece of the message that Zuckerberg also wanted people to take away, which is that you know we are building the first, which I find interesting to say, the first camera platform, the first open camera platform. Just like we opened up the newsfeed, we are opening up the camera. The mm -hmm. camera is going to be something that you can build on, you can launch services into, and you know, I think that that's interesting that we're moving from a more, I guess, applied version of mobile first to camera first. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also entering into a phase of voice first. So we are starting to get into the cognitive computing age through fits and starts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is, if we're sort of to bring this back around to F8, you know, the thing that did come out of this was thinking of the camera and camera experiences and lens experiences and enhancing computer vision um, with third-party developer concepts um, mm -hmm. and apps and experiences, that that is a direction that Facebook wants to, to chart and right. say, we're going to lead the way in terms of opening up the camera as uh, the next great place to integrate whatever it is that you guys are building. We should also probably talk about Facebook Messenger because uh, there were some <laughs> Facebook Messenger announcements. And this is, after all, a bots podcast. I think that's what a lot of people who are working on uh, natural language and, and bots and things supported by messaging were looking for. So uh, Facebook announced some new features for its workplace-oriented messaging platform called Workplace, right? Correct. Um, yep. As well as recently some new uh, features for Facebook Messenger in general that kind of point bots away from purely natural language conversations and toward a little bit more of a button interface. So it, it, it feeds into a little bit of the, the narrative in the tech press that... Uh, you know, bots aren't working out in their imagined form, and we're just going back to building applications that have buttons. What did you make of the of the messenger stuff, Chris? Yeah, uh, it's good that we finally like spent you know fifty minutes, and and now we're coming back to bots. <laughs> <laughs> that that might say something. Uh, well, that was actually I, I, how how it worked at the uh, Facebook keynote as well. True. Actually, the uh, the the messenger thing came up at the very end of the first day of keynotes after probably an an hour or so of AR demonstrations. Well, so so let's look at this a couple different ways. You know, one, it felt like when Messenger launched its platform last year, they were really riding a lot of hype around WeChat. And it was like, how does Facebook go into Asia and provide kind of an experience that feels familiar and is, you know, I mean, Facebook is really good at, at you know, copying competitors. Obviously, I think Snapchat is the latest example. And they took that that sort of copying, they actually made some improvements and they launched it across almost all their platforms, mm -hmm. you know, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram. Mm -hmm. The the question of bots specifically, though, uh, as, as conversational agents that live in the messaging context, you know, yeah, it didn't go so well. And there are a number of reasons for that that I think we've been talking about for a while, which is that the Western market is a very different one than the Asian market. Mm -hmm. um, typing, you know, using Latin script is somewhat easier than kanji and other types of languages. Um, we have an open web, so mm -hmm. you can, you know, access any website. You can publish a website without getting permission from, like, let's say, the Chinese government. Payments is still something that's very elusive for some reason in the Western market, whereas you know WeChat has that built into its platform. It's sort of expected. It's how people pay for things. QR mm -hmm. codes are normal. Like it's just a totally different world. Mm -hmm. And so when they launched, you know, the messenger platform, and they were sort of chasing after that that future um, in terms of looking for more growth, you know, it was a big bet to say let's sort of 
somehow let's take wit.ai and let's take a couple of other pieces together and sort of allow people just express what they want and we'll figure it out. And it turns out that one, that's extremely hard to do. Yeah. Um, and second, I think Facebook Messenger specifically doesn't have a lot of credibility to uh, enlist the help of brands to promote the idea that they should be talking to brands through a private context like Messenger as opposed to, let's say, a public context like Twitter. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of sort of behavioral challenges in this in this regard. But let's talk about what they actually launched. So what they did launch was a discovery surface. Now there's a bit of a store that lives inside of Messenger, and it allows you to go and find presumably bots uh, and brands that you'd like to talk to, maybe from a customer service perspective, um, or maybe you're looking to get notifications about news, or you know maybe you're trying to, I don't know, get like an insurance quote for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so your first thought <laughs> is to go to Messenger and be like, oh, I'm going to like look up insurance. I mean, I right, don't think right. do that. But you know what I mean? Like that is possible. They also you know made a nice refinement by enabling these apps, not bots. I think it's, it's wrong to think about them as bots, like app services that can live in conversation. Mm -hmm. And those, are, of course, are chat extensions, very similar to iMessage apps, um, where you're in the course of conversation and you could go open up the entire app, but that's really inefficient because you have to find it or search for it, know where it is, you have to download it, who knows. Um, and instead, you just sort of like press the little plus button, you see the different annotations that you can use, and you can share you know, Spotify music, you can share an open table recommendation. So it's kind of just shortcutting a lot of behavior that was already there. Mm -hmm. And then I think like the, let's see, the last thing that I think is actually really interesting that is really hard to anticipate whether it'll go well is the um, parametric QR codes. So yeah. of course, there were messenger codes last year. And these are essentially codes that you can scan in order to open a conversation with uh, a bot or a person, actually. Um, the thing that's actually very interesting about this is that you can use the... Well, so, so there's two things. One is that they moved the scan code behavior into the... I don't know what to call it, the Snapchat experience inside of Messenger. Sure. They're going to kill me for that and you know, <laughs> communicate me. Um, I'm sorry, Facebook team. Um, anyways, where you can just sort of like tap and hold to scan one of these parametric QR codes. Mm -hmm. And so that way you can very quickly actually, you know, jump into a conversation. Secondly, you can embed query params into that QR code. So for example, if I'm in a store and I look at a, a tag, a clothing tag, and it's got one of these parametric QR codes on it. And I want to know, I don't know what the warranty is, or I want to know how to, let's say, um, wash the thing. Like, does it shrink? Right. Well, if I can scan it with Messenger, open a conversation, the bot will have the context of what it is that I'm looking at and can give me information that's very contextual. So that starts to be an interesting way of actually pushing a conversation into a contextual moment that previously wasn't possible. Right. So right. if that starts to show up in retail, now you have an interesting reason why brands and marketers will start to use these things in the real world. Huh. So there's the, the, it provides this interesting bridge between kind of like real brick and mortar existence and digital existence. Yeah, just imagine if you know you put like a bitly URL on every uh, you know clothing tag, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to type it. Who wants to type it? You know, right, as, right. As Steve Jobs said, "Yuck, no one wants that." Uh, <laughs> sorry, the, it's the best the, thing ever. Yeah, I need the, that on the like, running like a button, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The running theme of uh, of basically all <laughs> user interface uh, design is is Yuck. that quote. Who wants that? Right. right. So, anyways, uh, they're they're just like you know short URLs, except without any typing. You you know, yeah, you point the camera at it. The camera now with computer vision can understand this thing, can parse it, know that it's a URL, and then know that it's specifically a messenger URL. Open up the bot. And be like, okay, this is the thing that you just pointed at. Let's have a conversation about it. Right. And that's incredibly powerful. And very few people, as far as I can tell, are actually doing anything with it. Though I, I will say the Messenger team did some interesting, you know, giveaways and contests um, and stuff like that at the event itself. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you could go to uh, an event. I'm sorry, you could go to a session, and they would have one of these QR codes up on screen. You could scan it with Messenger, and then it would actually open up the ability to leave feedback or ask questions of that session right within Messenger. Right. So that was that was pretty cool. You know, brick and mortar retailers have this inherent advantage that they can sort of push discovery in a sense. They can like put some unexpected product in the middle of the aisle and it will catch your eye and you'll look at it much more than if uh, Amazon puts an unexpected product in the middle of the search results or, or in a banner ad or something. That gives these brick and mortar retailers a, a leg up also in driving discovery of their digital presences. 
in theory, right? And and people have been looking for this for a long time. You've had QR codes for ages. You've had like, you know, stand in the aisle at Home Depot and scan the thing and you'll learn more about how to install this concrete in your house or whatever. No, no one's ever gone for it. I, I think it really feels like all that's separating it from success, though, is a kind of series of like slightly awkward, frictiony interaction things. And maybe if you can nail that, uh, everyone will everyone will hop on this. I mean, I was in Home Depot last night and couldn't find anyone to tell me where um, where the concrete patch was. And uh, I actually opened up Home Depot's website on my phone, looked for the product, and it tells you what aisle uh, it's in. Yeah. So. I could imagine beginning to use one of these services if there's a giant code and it promises to answer some actual question that I have, and if and if there's a real bridge. The weird thing about QR codes is that phones don't come with native QR code readers. So in the but I mean these are these are even more special than that. You have to have the messenger app to scan them, right? These are that's not true, generic, yeah. you know, universal QR codes. Facebook owns them. It's a very specific design. Yeah. You know, I, I will say your, your example about um, Home Depot is, I think, very, very interesting and very telling. And um, I only know this because, of course, I decided to build a structure for Burning Man. Uh-huh. And so I spent a good amount of time at Home Depot and, as a result, decided to download the app. Uh-huh. Uh, and in the app, they've actually done the thing where they map out the interior and you can sort of roughly say what you're looking for and they will you know, plot a, an internal, you know, map to get you to the thing that you want. Huh. But you provide this great example where it's like, why would I download the Home Depot app? That's right. ridiculous. Right. right. Whereas if you could just scan this thing, uh, whether it's with your camera or whether it's your spectacles or whether it's, you know, the messenger app. And as a result of scanning it, either the parametric QR code or taking a photo of the thing and using computer vision, it's like, this is roughly what you want. Though, of course, in your case, you're looking for the thing. So maybe that doesn't apply. But all the same, if... Uh, Home Depot was like, hey, you can just talk to us in Messenger and we can guide you, mm-hmm. right? That would be super interesting um, and would sort of prevent you from the agony of having to, you know, wait whatever 12 minutes to like download uh, the Home Depot app because right. it usually for some reason has poor connectivity in those stores, right? Um, right? And that would actually get you to the outcome that you're looking for much faster. The other thing that this could address is the problem of, uh, you know, feature discovery, finding the affordances within a bot that'll be helpful to you. Because in these cases, you're entering the bot experience with a need in mind. You're like, I I need to find lumber. Where is that in the store? Um, Too often, you know, we download bots or or begin to talk to bots because we hear that they're interesting. And, uh, oh, Home Depot has a bot. Let's check it out. You walk in, you type "hello." It says, "I'm sorry, I don't understand you." And then, and then you're like, "Well, screw this," and you walk away. And then you never try to interact with that bot again. If if the first time you interact with a bot is like when you have this very specific question, and uh, there's an instruction right there for how the bot will answer your question, it it you go in with this context. Maybe the bot has the context as well, and it helps it you know become a much uh, smoother experience. I mean, I think this is so important and it's so such an insightful thing to to sort of have arrived at because of several things. You know, one, we treat, you know, or I think whether it's the media or people sort of treat bots like these gurus mm-hmm. that you go up to and somehow it's supposed to know exactly the thing that you wanted. And yet when you say hello to it and it's confused, you're like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you understand me and all of my needs and just right. anticipate what it is that I want? <laughs> and I'm like, how often do you go up to someone on the street and sort of right. say hello? And they sort of stand there and look at you like, you know, you're broken. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. it's not a thing that you, or, or, you do, but you expect bots to be different. Or even the customer service desk at, at Home Depot. Right. There's a person exactly. there and you have to have a well-formed question in order to get a valuable exchange out of the person there. But so to your point, though, I think this is the thing that's actually very, very new and very different, which is the ability to communicate your current context or your current sort of whatever the thing is in your mind using a much more forgiving interaction model than a conventional app, mm-hmm. right? So the problem is like, if I download the Home Depot app, now I have to go through the navigation. I have to figure out the way that these things are called and described. Usually, you know, because I'm a layperson, I don't know all the technical terms. Like, for example, I was trying to find these very, very specific screws or something right, that right. are super esoteric. And I had a very clear idea in my mind of how they worked, but like couldn't describe it to like, right. you know, whatever. So you imagine if I'm in the Home Depot app, I'm just at a loss. I have no right. idea what this stuff looks like, how to find it. Whereas if I enter into a conversational context... You know, maybe I'm in the screws aisle and so I can like, you know, scan a code and it's like, okay, it looks like you're, you're looking for some kind of screw. 
Now let's go down the, the, the 20 questions path of figuring out exactly what it is that you want. Right. That is it indoors? Is whole, it outdoors? Is it big? Is it you know, small? Setting yeah. up that context is incredibly huge relative to opening up the Home Depot bot and starting from scratch mm. and being like, oh, do you want to start a new project or do you have an account? Would you like to log in? Like, you know, <laughs> please tell us your language. Please, you know, like all that stuff sort of fades away when you can share that context immediately. Right. And I think increasingly that is what people are going to expect, which is why the camera is so important to sharing the context um, mm -hmm. that you're in, because it's simple, simply a way of saying, you know, point this thing at your, your current situation and we'll have some sense some deep sense actually about what it is that's going on with you and we can jump in from there. Right. And it's worth noting that uh, at F8, most of the bots that were demonstrated were nowhere near this fabulous or sophisticated or, or future looking. In fact, I felt like most of the bots that were demonstrated at F8 were a step back from most people's dream about chat bots uh, from a year or so ago. Well, I mean, more than that, they didn't even show any of the bots or screenshots or flows in the keynote. You know, that right. says something. Yeah. They barely mentioned bots in the keynote, maybe even didn't at all. They talked about Messenger. Uh, I mean, David Marcus came up and talked about some of that stuff, you know, and, and, and but, but I guess my point is like last year they showed Poncho, they showed like, you know, when it had flowers, they were showing you what it looked like. This mm -hmm. year, they reserved all the showing for, of course, the AR and VR experiences, because I think that to your point, they wanted to drastically underpromise and kind of get people focused on very, very clear, specific use cases and right. get brands to sort of think about, okay, what are the one or two things that we can offer through this messaging context? And let's not try to shoot for the sky and make this general purpose AI, you know, that just, you know, is going to disappoint everybody. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, all of the bots that that I saw demonstrated in the breakout sessions, um, mostly by sort of Facebook developer advocates, were essentially process bots. Not a lot of NLU in there, which is surprising because Facebook owns wit.ai. But I think they're in the process of kind of resetting expectations, as you mentioned. It's it's there were high expectations a year ago. Now people are kind of becoming more realistic. And frankly, there are a lot of processes that you could remake with a thoughtful bot that don't involve natural language. I mean, if you are running an IT help desk, it's pretty wonderful to be able to send your support tickets out through Slack rather than making everyone, you know, log into your Jira dashboard. So that was the type of thing that they were that they were demonstrating. And I thought it was an interesting shift from last year. Look, like they've announced that they have 1.2 billion users. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of those folks are going to have varying levels of sophistication, probably, you know, leaning more towards the sides of not a lot of sophistication. Right. So if you bring them into, you know, the bot context, again, they're going to continue to have this sort of broad set of expectations about what should be possible because it's a text field. And I can talk to people using whatever language I want. I can say whatever I want. And they're going to understand probably with some degree of clarity what it is that I'm saying. If I right. can't do the same thing with these bots, does that make me feel stupid? Yeah, probably. You know, does it make me feel like I don't want to use the platform anymore? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. So instead, if you guide developers and builders towards these very clear use cases that are very straightforward and direct, you minimize the sort of like damage to the platform by having people having negative experiences. And over time, you sort of slowly return back to the NLP stuff and the NLU stuff. Once the technology is actually in a really good place, right. then that starts to sort of, you know, make more sense. Right. right and I think right. they also, with the, with the chat extensions, they wanted to say something a little bit different about how discovery would work in context mm -hmm. um, and be less about parsing users' language, which of course I'm sure is all over the place and mostly doesn't make any sense to doing things that, you know, you know that you can execute on. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how far behind the ideal of, you know, a great NLU driven chatbot most companies are. And so how much, how much ground is between sort of where they are and, and, and that idea and how much value you can get by just taking your existing human process and moving it onto a messenger or taking your, uh, existing kind of human messenger process and adding just a little bit of a bot to the front end. There, there's so much to gain from that, that I think by, by talking about the sort of dream NLU bots, we're distracting from that. I, I, yeah. I had a, a really productive haggle with United Airlines over uh, DM on Twitter this past uh, weekend after, after some uh, disruptions on my way home. And this, the service was remarkably smooth. Twitter has really implemented a lot of cool details for companies that provide service on Twitter. There's even a badge on certain Twitter accounts yeah. that says like provides service customer service on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you at message United and you say I have a problem, they 
write back to you in public, take it into a DM. The whole conversation flows into the DM very fluidly. The, the same representative is helping you in the DM. They still know who you are. I would guess that there's a bot that asks you for your frequent flyer number and your, and your um, confirmation number before they hand it back to the human who was helping you earlier. So something like that is just so far superior to like trying to rebook your airline ticket by waiting on hold for 45 minutes you know, on the cell phone. And uh, it's awesome. And it doesn't require any NLU, really. It's just like, it's just the moving of the of the uh, process onto messaging. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that the best NLU is still done by humans, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and so this concept of of partnering or collaboration between automated systems and, you know, the human in the loop piece I think is a new art form that's you know ra rapidly emerging, and I would have loved to see Facebook sort of talk a little bit more about that rather than just say let's build kind of automated systems and services that people like talk to or go through forms through. But there's enough customer service um, platforms and builders out there that are you know emerging that I don't know that they actually need to spend too much time on that. Yeah. So it's been a year since the uh, you know the colossal F8 in 2016 when Messenger was opened up to bots, and that launched a lot of the current interest in bots. We've seen Facebook kind of mature in its appreciation of bots. Uh, now they've introduced a completely new kind of hype platform. So what, what do you think uh, F8 2018 is going to involve, Chris? Oh my god. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny, I think you, you sort of like said it correctly, um, in that the camera platform is the new hype. And mm -hmm. it's the new sort of storyline. Um, but obviously, from the bots perspective, from the sort of automated conversational product perspective, I think all of these things actually fit into a broader shift in the way that we do computing, which is that our computers start to learn and know more about us and start to be able to anticipate our needs a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And there's a now wide range and diverse set of options for providing services to people that didn't really exist before. You know, mm -hmm. if before you had to go to some, you know, terrible customer service form and sort of fill it out and hope that you might hear from them or whatever. Now you have these conversational experiences that, as you said, could start in social media, then can be transmitted. And in fact, you can imagine using maybe not a, a parametric QR code per se uh, in Twitter, but you could sort of take that conversation into a bot using one of the um, query params in a, in a messenger bot mm -hmm. and say, you know, let's pick up this conversation over here. With the advent of uh, augmented reality platforms and VR, we're now creating kind of these rich overlays of information in context onto the world, which is augmenting our ability to see the data that is hidden from our eyes currently. Mm -hmm. um, and when you go into a virtual space, you can create entirely new types of social experiences that uh, we couldn't even fathom or think about before. So we are, again, just like last year, at the very, very beginning of a new type of computing experience that is going to become increasingly common and increasingly normal. And even though people I don't know are going to be wearing these VR headsets everywhere they go, uh -huh. um, I do start to see them popping up in places. So there is an element of this where this is becoming a little bit no more normal. Mm -hmm. So if I think forward to F8 2018, I think that we probably will have made several advances in terms of computer vision, in terms of overlays. You know, by then, of course, we'll probably have the Apple voice device. We'll probably have a new iPhone, which has a lot more AR capabilities built into it. Um, and so a lot of those ideas, I mean, in some ways we saw this last year, you know, F8 came before WWDC and at WWDC, Apple opened up more of its iMessage platform. So we'll see a similar type of following on, I think, at WWDC this year, hmm. um, which is all to say the technology world is becoming a lot richer and a lot denser and the experiences are becoming more, I think, nuanced and immersive. Yeah, And that's the thing that I think I'm going to be looking forward to in F8 2018 is like how those things start to come together and you can blend modes from one context to another to another. You know, you can get into your self-driving car and have a conversation with Siri or Katana or M or whatever and be like, you know, while I'm driving, I'm going to like pop into my VR rig and have that experience. And then mm -hmm. when I get out, I'm going to continue that experience through an AR overlay on my world and be able to talk to the retail environment that I just walked into through the bot system that's there. Because as I'm looking at this product, it's actually reading subliminally the embedded QR, whatever code that's on that thing. And it's giving me lots of information about it and yada, yada, yada. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm similarly going to be watching for, uh, how this stuff gets applied. And I think a year from now, we'll have a good sense of uptake and, and kind of the, the energy that the community is willing to put into it. Because Facebook announced a series of pretty 
extraordinary advancements in artificial intelligence software and kind of the, the geometric kernels that go underneath augmented reality. And then they just kind of like thrust them out into the world. And so best case scenario is that, um, you know, a lot of really talented developers take these things and run with them and create really cool experiences with them and that they're and that Facebook is able to uh, present them in a, in a high level enough generalized way that that they're accessible and that, you know, the kind of developer who now plays with, um, you know, Facebook login and and uh, the Facebook API is going to be able to use Facebook's uh, new slam features for its augmented reality. Worst case scenario, this just lands with a thud. And, um, you know, Facebook has spent a ton of money on this. And, and it's the kind of thing that only like Facebook, Apple, uh, Amazon and, and Microsoft and Google can do is throw like a hundred PhDs at a problem like this and create some fabulous new technology. A, a reason, by the way, that I think Snapchat probably ought to feel threatened because it turns out that it's not that difficult to replicate every image feature in Snapchat. Um, but, you know, it, it could be that Facebook has put all this effort into it and uh, and they don't nail the developer tools and, and right. people don't do much with it. But probably it'll wind up somewhere in between. I'm, so I'm really enthusiastic about uh, what people might create if the tools are, are good enough for people to create. Do you think they will have a Snapchat API by 2018? Oh man, that's a good question. I thought uh, someone someone told me that uh, he had asked someone at Snapchat, so this is like fourth hand. Someone told me that he had asked someone at Snapchat about whether <laughs> we saw they would- on a Snapchat, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. So I saw, I was looking over a guy's shoulder on the train at his Snapchat <laughs> feed. Um, and he said he had asked someone who worked for Snapchat whether we would have a Snapchat API anytime soon. And the answer was, Evan wouldn't want that. So that was the, uh, you know, I, I think in the same way that uh, someone working for Facebook in 2007 might have answered, Mark wouldn't want that to some question, you know. Well, these Steve Jobs didn't mature. want apps for the iPhone either, so. Yeah, why let why let the common person into your beautiful, yeah, beautiful machine? who wants that? Who wants that? So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Snapchat may, may get forced, but, uh, you know, Facebook is breathing down his neck. So, Chris, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, Likewise. If listeners want to find you online, where should they look for you? Um, well, you can always reach me on Twitter at Chris Messina, and I've got a bot, uh, which is available at m.me slash MessinaBot. Cool. Excellent. Chris Messina, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks, John. Here on the Bots Podcast, we talk about a lot of different cutting-edge technologies, but we especially love artificial intelligence. If you're interested in learning more about AI, you'll want to check out the O'Reilly AI Conference. At the O'Reilly AI Conference, we talk about not only cutting-edge new techniques, we also talk about real practical advice for building real AI-driven products. The O'Reilly AI Conference is coming up twice this year, once in New York, June 26 to 29, and once in San Francisco, September 17 to 20. To see the schedule and register for the O'Reilly AI Conference, visit O'ReillyAICon.com. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the O'Reilly Bots podcast, be sure to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever it is that you enjoy listening to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us.